Welcome back to The Law with D.K. Williams. That is indeed me. I am David Kent Williams Jr., but for simplicity's sake, you can call me D.K. And as always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This week we're on episode three, and we're going to discuss who was Marbury and why did he sue Madison? This is a very famous case that, of course, as I have mentioned before about other topics, most people have not read. The case is Marbury v. Madison. Now, most folks can probably guess who the Madison is, right? But who was Marbury? And like I asked at the beginning, why did he sue Madison? We'll get into that historical perspective and why this early Supreme Court decision is so important. We live with it today. First... I've got some more thoughts on this ongoing drama around the Brett Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. And it does tie in with Marbury v. Madison, actually, because Marbury v. Madison laid out a lot of the powers the Supreme Court has now, which, of course, Trump has nominated Kavanaugh to that bench. I'm not a big Kavanaugh fan, and I've written about it on my blog, which is bluecarp.net. So check that out if you want to hear some of my issues with Kavanaugh. But barring some earth-shattering event... He's going to be confirmed. The Dems don't have the numbers to stop it, and and frankly, they shouldn't. Now, think about this for perspective. In 1986, one of the most conservative justices of all time, not just modern times, Antonin Scalia, he was confirmed unanimously. Let that sink in. All of the Democrats voted to confirm Antonin Scalia. All of the Democrats voted to confirm Antonin Scalia. 32 years ago, when they did that, the Democrats weren't debasing themselves with some ridiculous charade like they are now. I mean, they're just putting on a show, and it's really shameful. This feigned indignation they have about how life as we know it is going to change, they're just compiling sound bites for their next campaign fundraiser. It doesn't matter what Kavanaugh does or answers any questions or what documents are turned over, not one of them is going to vote for him. This, despite that... Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee who never got a vote because the way the elections were set up and the Republicans didn't let them vote on, didn't let the Senate vote on them. And the Democrats are all upset about Merrick Garland not getting a chance and not being seated, confirmed to the Supreme Court. Well, Kavanaugh votes with Garland 93% of the time. So you can see it's not that big of a difference. Now, that 7% is important stuff. I'm not going to say it's not, but it's not as if he is 180 degrees uh, away from even the guy the Democrats wanted to be nominated and, and appointed and confirmed, most importantly. My disagreements with Kavanaugh are legal arguments and legal philosophy, and arguments and philosophy are not a legit basis for voting against a confirmation. The Constitution says the Senate is to provide advice and consent to judicial nominations of the president. It isn't to demand policy agreement or philosophical foundational agreement. And that's what the Democrats are demanding, which is ridiculous because they don't have control of Congress. They don't have control of the Senate. They don't have control of the White House. The Republicans do. The Republicans have control of this process and they're not going to get policy agreement on every issue like the Democrats are demanding. One specific absurdity that's popped up recently, which is really the thing that motivated me on this topic. One specific absurdity that's popped up recently that's really got me fired up on this is that this this democratic indignation in shocked tones about how they're whispering about, oh my God, OMG, Kavanaugh thinks the president can ignore unconstitutional laws. How absurd. Well, it's not absurd. 
It's been going on since at least Thomas Jefferson was president, and he was president when Marbury v. Madison was decided. So see how it all ties in together? And we're going to talk about some of the things that he did, ignoring unconstitutional laws. Of course they can. There's not any debate about this. Presidents have ignored unconstitutional laws since at least Thomas Jefferson. So when Bernie Sanders posts on Facebook, this was on July 10th, just a little over a couple months ago, almost two months ago, he said that Kavanaugh's opinion that, quote, the president may decline to enforce a statute when the president deems the statute unconstitutional is contrary to 200 years of Supreme Court precedent. No, it's not, Bernie. It's not at all. Just these partisan hacks. And it's not just Democrats. Believe me, Republicans are just as bad. It's just that today and what's going on right now, it's the Democrats that are really showing their asses on national TV and, and parading themselves around with their butts hanging out. The Republicans do it too. But this week, we're talking about the Democrats. These incredibly uninformed, incredibly uninformed things that they say, and this is one of them. All right, Thomas Jefferson, back to Marbury v. Madison, in that time period. The Federalists... Congress, before Jefferson was elected, Federalist had Congress, John Adams, a Federalist, was in the White House. That Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which, among a bunch of other things, made it a federal crime to criticize the president. How much more unconstitutional can you get than that? And what kind of boggles my mind is, in a historical perspective, just about 10 years earlier, 10 years prior to Congress passing the Alien and Sedition Act, the Bill of Rights had been passed. So it's not like they really, how could they have forgotten I mean, most of them were involved with it. At least a whole lot of them were. Ten years earlier, they passed the First Amendment. Ten years later, they're passing a law that says it is a federal crime to criticize the president. I mean, it's absurd. It's clearly unconstitutional. And Jefferson knew it. So when Jefferson took over after the election of 1800, he refused to enforce it. So when Bernie Sanders talks this nonsense, it's just nonsense. I mean, it's embarrassing for the guy. If he, if he was capable of embarrassment, he would be embarrassed. And even beyond that... If you take Sanders at his word that the president is required to enforce every unconstitutional law, that means he would want not only the president to enforce something like the Alien and Sedition Act, actually happened in history, right, when the president didn't. Plessy v. Ferguson, that was the Supreme Court doctrine that set up the separate but equal doctrine in public schools. Bernie says, oh, well, the president has to enforce that because the Supreme Court says that was constitutional. Dred Scott Freed slaves aren't uh, protected by the Constitution. Another horrible, unconstitutional, ridiculous Supreme Court decision. Bernie Sanders, oh, hey, he's indignant that the president would, would refuse to enforce that. Korematsu, another Supreme Court decision. That's the one that said the president had power to put the Japanese Americans into camps during World War II. Again, oh, Bernie says, oh, yeah, of course the president has to do that. And of course, FDR wanted to do it. But let's say the next president came along. Oh, my goodness. The president has to do it, which is just an asinine thing. So I've said enough about the asininity of Bernie Sanders and the hysterical Democrats putting on a ridiculous show that they know is not going to do anything. So it's ridiculous, but so is modern American politics, right? The president swears an oath to the Constitution, personal oath. He doesn't swear an oath to what the Supreme Court says is the Constitution. He swears an oath to the Constitution. And it's up to him to decide what is constitutional and what is not and what he's going to do. That is part of his job. It's part of his oath. It's the same oath that the congressmen take, the representatives and the senators. It's up to them to not vote for things that are unconstitutional. So how did we get to where we are today? What was the original intent behind the Constitution, which was very explicit about the federal government was going to be limited to 17 things specifically listed in Article 1, Section 8, to today where the federal government can and does almost anything it wants to do? 
And we talked about Citizens United last week. Well, that was when the Supreme Court said that a federal statute was unconstitutional. So that is the concept of judicial review. How did we get that concept? Well, it comes from Marbury v. Madison. Now, I say, how did we get it? That was the first time it was used in the United States. Justice Marshall did not create that idea of judicial review. It already existed in British common law, but this was the first time it was actually used in the United States of America under the Constitution. And that case that presented it was Marbury v. Madison. The decision was uh, decided in 1803. And if you think politics today are bad, they were pretty much just as bad in 1800 and, and before that. In the election of 1800, big fight between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. We just call them the Republicans for short now. John Adams was a Federalist. Jefferson was not. And in 1800, Jefferson won, which might have been the last time the Federalists lost a political fight because they've done nothing but increase the size of the federal government ever since. But this is what happened at that time. The Federalists control Congress even after Adams lost the election. There's a lame duck period, right, before Jefferson is sworn in. So the Federalist Congress, who's angry because they lost the election, they want to say, screw these guys, right? We're out of here, but a majority of us are out of here. We're not going to control Congress anymore. We're not going to control the White House. So what can we do? So one of the things they did was they appointed a lot of judges and justices. And one thing they did was they reduced the number of justices on the Supreme Court from six to five thereby making sure that whenever the next vacancy came about, if somebody retired or died, that Jefferson couldn't get a replacement because it was going to go from six to five, right? It also created a whole bunch of new judges, federal judges, including justices of the peace for the District of Columbia. And of course, the Senate would have to confirm them like, like they still do today. And pursuant to this act, on his way out the door, John Adams nominated a bunch of justices of the peace for Supreme Court, among other positions. And the Senate confirmed before they were kicked out. So you had this lame duck time period when the Federalists are just trying to screw the Republicans. Kind of like today, right? But get this, John Marshall, who later becomes the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, in 1800 is serving as Adams Secretary of State. And it was up to the Secretary of State to get these commissions that were based on Adams' nominations and con congressional approval. He had to take these pieces of paper and get them to the people that were uh, appointed so they could take over their jobs. He didn't get them out to everybody. He didn't get them out to Marbury. And you can think about this. Who gets these appointments? Well, it's politically connected rich guys, mostly, right? And that's who Marbury was. He was a big Adam supporter. He was a rich guy. And so he was going to get this cushy federal gig. Uh, but Adams didn't get around, well, didn't his Secretary of State, John Marshall, didn't get around to handing it out to him. So then Jefferson eventually took over. And there's a handful of these commissions that have not been delivered, including the one to Marbury. And Jefferson's like, screw you guys. We're not handing these out. We're never going to give them to you guys. So you guys cannot take your uh, judicial offices. And just so you know, that these particular Justice of the Peace nominations were five-year terms, not lifetime appointments like Supreme Court justices and district court judges. So Marbury sues Madison, who's now the Secretary of State of the United States. So Madison is Jefferson's Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State is the one that's supposed to physically deliver these pieces of paper so these guys can take their cushy legal, cushy federal legal jobs. Marbury sues Madison to make him deliver the already signed and ready to go commissions. Now, he sued directly to the Supreme Court because the federal statute that created all of these also gave someone, gave Marbury and people like him, the ability to sue directly in the Supreme Court and not to a lower court, which also existed at the time. Now, just a quick little aside here, Marbury's lawyer was Charles Lee, and Lee later defended Aaron Burr for treason in the case of United States v. Burr. That, that, the Burr case was in 1807, and uh, Charles Lee won that on behalf of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was acquitted of the treason charges. Now, all right, back to this. Charles Lee 
representing Marbury, brings this case directly to the Supreme Court, where John Marshall is now the Supreme Court Justice, and he was the Secretary of State when Adams was president. It's like kind of a very shallow pool here, people, right? So Marshall's decision, writing on behalf of the United States Supreme Court, was that Marbury had the right to be a justice of the peace and that Madison could be ordered to deliver the commission. So it looks like Marbury won, right? Well, he didn't. Marbury lost because of the way Marshall got to that point. Marshall said that the act of Congress that allowed Marbury to bring the case straight to the Supreme Court was inconsistent with the Constitution, which spells out the specific jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So because he wasn't allowed to bring it directly in the Supreme Court, which is against the Constitution, he had to lose because the Supreme Court did not have constitutional jurisdiction to hear the case. That is the concept of judicial review. If Congress does something unconstitutional or passes a law that is in conflict with the Constitution, the Supreme Court can say, hey, that's what you guys did. That's not constitutional. Therefore, the statute is no good and you can't use it to do whatever it is you're trying to do. And this is a very important philosophical when it comes to government and, and politics, very important question. And there's no explicit answer in the Constitution. What do you do? What should we do? What should the government do in the United States of America when a statute does conflict with the Constitution? So Marbury v. Madison says the Supreme Court gets to decide that. And that's still the rule. That's not explicitly in the Constitution, but that's how we go about our business today. So Marshall ruled that the Constitution would win that conflict, which I think we would all agree on, right? And that's the statute is invalid. Marshall wrote, this is like a major philosophical point, right? He wrote in Marbury v. Madison, quote, to what purpose are powers limited? And to what purpose is that limitation committed to writing if these limits may at any time be passed by those intended to be restrained? What he's saying here is the powers are limited. The Constitution says the federal government can only do certain things under these circumstances. And why did we write that down and put it in a Constitution if Congress who's supposed to be limited in what they can do, if they can just ignore it and do whatever they want. Great question. I'm with Marshall there, all right? I'm with, I'm with him there. But here's the real question. What is the difference between Congress ignoring those limitations and the Supreme Court rewriting them? Now, that's not the Supreme Court did not, did not rewrite the Constitution in Marbury, Marbury v. Madison, but they have since in many occasions. So who checks the Supreme Court when they do it? And this is where the concept of nullification comes in. States also have the right and ability and authority to enforce the Constitution. So Jefferson and Madison in 1798, see, a couple of years before Jefferson was elected president, again, in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts, wrote the Kentucky and Virginia Resolution. So Jefferson wrote the Kentucky one, Madison wrote the Virginia one with the same basic idea, is that if the Congress is going to pass a law that is unconstitutional, like the Alien and Sedition Acts, the states can ignore them. States can say, no, that's unconstitutional. We're not going to do it. It wasn't a completely novel idea. People had written about that and talked about it in the state gratification charters. And it's happened before. It's happened. It happened during the Civil War when the Fugitive Slave Acts, which required law enforcement to assist a slave owner who was looking for a runaway slave in a free state to bring a captured, alleged captured, or a captured alleged slave, runaway slave, and bring them back to the South. Some of the federal states were like, no, we're not going to do that. So when people say nullification is some racist concept, because that's where everything goes, right? If you don't believe the federal government should have unlimited power, if you want the government, federal government to be limited by the states, oh, you're a racist, you're a neo-confederate, right? Well, that's, that, that's ridiculous because nullification was used by northern states to nullify the Fugitive Slave Act and refuse to cooperate with federal agents or slave owners who sent a bounty hunter to retrieve a, a runaway slave. And there are instances 
where the local law enforcement and the state law enforcement actively protected the runaway slaves, actively prohibited the federal agents who are trying to bring these guys back to the South. That is nullification. So that's just like a quick aside there. All three branches of the federal government are supposed to enforce the Constitution on their own. It's not the idea that Congress can do whatever the hell they want and go, hey, we can do this. We don't think it's constitutional, but we're going to let the Supreme Court decide. No, they're not supposed to even vote for unconstitutional bills. And the president isn't supposed to sign them if he thinks it's unconstitutional. He's not supposed to say, well, I think this is unconstitutional, but I'll let the Supreme Court decide. No, if he thinks it's unconstitutional, he's supposed to veto it. And people aren't supposed to vote for it if they think it's unconstitutional. The Supreme Court isn't supposed to be the, the backstop that Congress and the president try to do as much as they can, and, con and the Supreme Court is supposed to rein them in. No, they're all supposed to do that. Of course, they don't. And we got to the point where the Supreme Court was just rubber stamping whatever Congress wanted to do. Anyway, Congress and the White House wanted to do anyway. Really blew up during uh, the New Deal and FDR, but I'm going to say a few words about that momentarily. So John Marshall says the Supreme Court gets to decide what's constitutional and not. Jefferson, of course, disagreed with that. And this was, he wrote something about it 20 years later. He's, he's retired now, or at least retired from, from politics. And he's discussing this very idea, this idea of judicial review, Supreme Court review being the final word. And he says, you seem to consider the judges as the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions, a very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. Our judges are as honest as other men, and not more so. They have, with others, the same passions for party, for power, and the privileges of their core. End quote. Judges aren't any better than congressmen or presidents. They're still human beings. Jefferson is correct in that. Now, this judicial review concept reached its nadir, its absolute depth. Well, it, it reached the bottom, but then kept going. Kept going down. They reached this, this point with Wickard v. Filburn, which was uh, an FDR idea. Well, the, the, a statute part of the New Deal, which was going to limit the amount of grain that farmers could grow in order to control the supply and control the demand and all that kind of thing, right? It was central planning, right? At its very worst. That's what the New Deal was largely. And there was a farmer who was growing crops and not selling them at all. He was using them for his animals. He was using them uh, for his family, but he wasn't selling the crops. But he was growing more than the New Deal said he was supposed to grow. And so the feds came down and said, hey, you're violating the statute. You're, you're violating the rules about how much you're supposed to grow. And he's like, you can't tell me what to do because I'm not selling this. The federal government has the, the enumerated authority, power, to regulate interstate commerce. So not only am I not shipping this stuff across state lines, I'm not selling it at all. So it's not interstate and it's not commerce. So you guys are just stupid for telling me you can regulate me under the interstate commerce clause. <laughs> you know what happened? The Supreme Court said, well, you're right. It's not interstate. It's not commerce, but it's interstate commerce anyway, because I mean, the rationale is ridiculous. You have to go to an Ivy League school to, um, to be the smart, to understand the ridiculousness of this. Try to say it with a straight face. They said that if people grew more than they're supposed to under these statutes, even if they didn't sell it, that would still affect interstate commerce because the guy producing it for himself wouldn't have to buy it from somebody else, which would affect the price and therefore the whole New Deal thing would, would, would not work. So the New Deal and this particular program limiting the amount of crops this guy could grow did affect interstate commerce, which is all nonsense. But that was the decision. And we accept that today. I mean, I guess you and I might not, but society, the legal community accepts that today. And why? To me, it's absurd. What if Supreme Court said, the sun is the moon and the moon is the sun? No one with any dignity or self-respect would accept that. But we accept that something that is neither interstate 
your commerce is interstate commerce. And that's exactly the same thing. That all goes back to Marbury versus Madison. And that brings us to Etienne de la Boétie. If you have not read Discourse on Voluntary Servitude by Etienne de la Boétie, do it now. A free copy of the essay um, is on Mises.org. That version of it has a great intro by Murray Rothbard. So go check that out. De la Boétie, he was like a he was th- 1300s French government agent. He was well off. He went to college and all that kind of stuff. He was part of the upper class. And his discourse on voluntary servitude concludes that tyrants exist because the subjects obey. They don't obey out of fear. They obey because they choose to. And he talks about how once freedom is given up to the king or the government or the Congress or whatever, once it's given up, new generations don't know they never had it. They don't know what they've lost. So that goes on and on. And people are like, you know, I'm happy with this, even though my actions are severely limited or they're limited here, they're limited there. They accept it. And that's why tyrants continue to have their power because people just say, okay, they just say, okay, they, 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 they abide by the law. So what my goal as a modern application of what De La Boetie is saying, and I got a good quote from him in a second, don't concede the state is correct. I think most of you don't. A lot of people do. A lot of people go, yeah, of course, interstate commerce. You don't have to sell something for it to be interstate commerce. That's insane to me. Don't concede that activities that are neither interstate nor commerce are magically transformed into interstate commerce because the Supreme Court said so. It doesn't make it so. Call them out on that. Don't accept it. Don't accept when somebody says, well, that's the way it is now. It's not baloney. It is that way because we let it be that way. We need to stop letting it be that way and calling out this nonsense. And that is a large part of De La Boetie's point. We don't have to concede absurdity in the name of being ruled. Here's a good quote from De La Boetie. He says, the tyrant, quote, has nothing more than the power that you confer upon him to destroy you. Where has he acquired enough eyes to spy on you if you do not provide them yourselves? How can he have so many arms to beat you with if he does not borrow them from you? How does he have any power over you except through you? He then concludes that portion of it with, I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him, but simply that you support him no longer. Pretty powerful stuff, and it's true, and it's very difficult. I get the notion that it's very difficult to apply. If people just start ignoring the government, and we could talk about all the different ways that we might be able to do that, somebody is going to be jailed. A portion of people is going to be jailed. Now, they can't jail everybody. If everybody ignores it, they can't jail everybody. But somebody's going to be jailed. Somebody's going to be arrested. Somebody's going to be beaten. Somebody's going to be killed for noncompliance. And this happens organically every day. Look at Eric Garner. He refused to comply with the cigarette tax, and New York City cops killed him with a chokehold. Look at Lavoie Finnicum, shot and killed by federal agents for refusing to comply. So I don't have a simple answer. Withdrawing consent will be hard, and it will take a lot of people, but I know that almost no one understands this problem. We've been conditioned into just accepting what the government tells us to do. So understanding this problem, that we do not have to just accept it, is a first step. You understand this. And I want you to stand up for this in the future. The sun is not the moon, regardless of what the Supreme Court or anybody else with a government badge or gun tells you. Stand up to that. This has been The Law with D.K. Williams, brought to you by Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Guys, give me some feedback. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and uh, my other podcasts. Send me an email. You can do that at Dave at dkwilliams.net. Hit me up on Twitter at bluecarp. That's the color in the fish, blue carp. And on facebook.com slash blue carp, same thing. Finally, remember my friends, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.